We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, if you would please. And we'll read here in this chapter. Remember, as Jansen read, he reminded us of the outline of the book, uh, generally speaking, the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That's in chapter 1, verse 19. And uh, I've used that outline uh, every time I've taught the book of Revelation. And by the way, don't just close your Bible when you get to Revelation like it's too hard or it's, it's too difficult or it's too scary or it's whatever. It's not, okay? It's really not. God gave it to us so that we would read it and understand it. In fact, he says in chapter 1, blessed is he who reads and obeys the prophecy of this book. And so we don't want to you know, make our Bibles to be 65 books practically, uh, or maybe 64 if you don't like, uh, you know, Ecclesiastes, or 63 if you don't like Song of Solomon, or 62 if you don't read you know, one of your minor prophets. And you see what happens? You start whittling it down, and uh, pretty soon you know, you're going to have a few New Testament books, and, and that's about it. Because the Old Testament's too hard, and you know, Daniel's too hard, and Revelation's too hard. Hebrews, that's too hard. And No, God's given us all of this for, for his glory and for our edification. Anyway, that outline talked about the things which you've seen, the things which are. We're finished with that section of the book. Now we're moving on to the things that are after this. Notice how it opens in verse 1 of chapter 4. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, I don't teach that this is the rapture of the church. This is a uh, kind of a, pri a pre-rapture, um, how can I say, preview for John to see what it looks like up there and uh, the revelation that he was receiving. And it says he was in the spirit immediately in verse 2, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So this is his vision of the glorious throne room of God. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne and appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed with, in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. 
And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. and By your will they exist and were created. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 7, if you would please. We have a lengthy section of text that we may or may not get through this morning. Luke chapter 7. Two portions that are quite interesting uh, to me. You have a hard-hearted and hard-headed generation juxtaposed to a forgiven sinner. Starting in verse 31, this really is, and probably in some of your Bibles, many of them is connected with the prior section about John the Baptist that we looked at last time. Uh, And you remember at the end of that, when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. Verse 31, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. I'd like to have you in your mind connect that back to the wisdom of the people, even the tax collectors justifying God. Verse 36 then says this, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. By the way, did you notice that the man, Simon here, spoke to himself, and then Jesus answered? You know, when you think to yourself, it's like you're talking out loud to God. He hears it just as well. Jesus illustrated, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered and said, I, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke presents the sad story of implacable Israel next door to the moving account of a woman saved from her sins. We start with the unrepentant generation that rejected God in chapter 7, verse 31 to 35. The Lord is making a generalization about the men of that generation. He says, what shall I liken to these men of this generation? What are they like? Of course, he's not saying all of them without exception because there are many uh, who followed him. There were at least a few, we can say, for sure. And I just make a note here that he does say the men, the anthropos, and sometimes that is a general word that can mean men and women. But for now, I'm going to stick with the interpretation that this refers to the males, the leaders, the ones who are supposed to be leading the assembly of Israel and guiding it in righteousness. Instead, they were playing another role, a role of unbelief. I, I think sometimes maybe it's a little bit of a temptation for the men to broaden out the referent here and say, well, it's just people generally. It's just, you know, it's men and women. It's everybody. Kind of spread the blame around to the people of this generation. But the fact of the matter is that men are responsible to lead and God will hold them accountable for how they lead their church, their families, their society. Okay? Women are not called to lead, called to follow, called to be submissive to their husbands and so on, but not to lead. And so don't spread the blame around, gentlemen. You set the tone in your home. We set the tone in our church. We're the leaders here. We're the ones that are responsible. And of course, all sinners are culpable for their sin. We don't excuse that by saying, as I'm saying here, but I just thought it'd be a good place for us to make a point that we can talk to men and say, men, you need to stand up on your hind legs and do what's right. Jesus likens these men to children. Now let that sink in, okay? He's saying, you guys are like children. You guys are like babies, in effect, Children, calling them childish. This is not trash talk. This is not to be mean, but it's because of what they're like. Foolishness, remember, from the Proverbs in our study recently is bound in the heart of a child. It's part and parcel of childhood immaturity. And the grown men of that generation were acting very childlike in their characteristics. It was not endearing or cute. It was blameworthy and ugly. And what, it's, what the Lord says is it's like children sitting in the marketplace just out you know, in the public square and maybe a, a, a group of children or two groups of children calling out to each other. 
and uh, they're amongst themselves and their playmates and saying, listen, no matter what we do, you won't play along with our game. You, uh, you know, we play the flute and you will not dance. You know, you won't dance a jig with us. But if we play the funeral game, you won't mourn either. We did something fun and you did not respond accordingly. We pretended to mourn and you did not weep with us. You're no fun. The point of the likeness is that the children hearing the call were simply unresponsive. No matter what the offering was, if it was fun, they did not accept it. If it was sober, they did not accept it. They were implacable, unsatisfied, always critical. No, we're not going to, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. Similarly to the group of children, John the Baptist came with a message of mourning and repentance. He was an austere man. He was uh, not indulging in nice food or wine. Nice clothing, certainly not his portion. And so what did the people of Israel do? The leaders, not those that went out and were baptized by him. That we saw in chapter 7, verse uh, 29. Those who were baptized responded favorably. But those that weren't, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the leaders of the nation, and many people along with them who followed them, they uh, attributed his message and lifestyle to a demon. Jesus, however, came with a lighter message, with a more cheerful, less austere approach. He went and ate with tax collectors and sinners, sharing a level of fellowship with them. But the men of this generation had a reply for that too. He was a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. None of that's good. It doesn't sound good. It's not good. It's their criticism of him. Later, too, they also attributed his works to the devil, didn't they? Luke chapter 11, it's in verse number 15. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Look, if you, you know, no matter what John said, no matter what Jesus said, if you tar and feather it, you know, and just say, look, it's all from the devil, it makes a convenient excuse not to listen to it, doesn't it? You know, just plug up your ears, close up your eyes, just say it's from the devil, talk to the hand, don't talk to me. Easy to just throw it all out. Jesus summarizes with this phrase, wisdom is justified by all her children. You might have wondered what that means. Um, the, The word children connects verbally back to the illustration of the children playing in the marketplace. Those hearing the call of their friends were acting foolishly. If the men of this generation had been wise, they would have demonstrated it by listening carefully to what Jesus said. So the aphorism is something like this. You know wisdom by its fruits. You know a good tree by its good fruit, right? You know that from elsewhere in Scripture. You know wisdom by its children, meaning its results. You look at the children and you see, are are they... uh, wise children or unwise children. So the fruit of that uh, situation, what it produces. In the men of this generation, there was obvious foolishness. There was not wisdom. It's utterly foolish for them to behave the way that they were doing. Their life showed by unrepentance that they did not have God's wisdom. 
The tax collectors, on the other hand, did. Now, just a, a word of application here on listening to the Christian message. One minister may be more like John, another minister more like Jesus. What I mean by that is one more mm, austere, one more uh, upbeat, one more uh, about repentance, one more about life, and different emphases. Audience members may have a preference on style. And a pastor who's too dour or one that's too lighthearted may be able to incline their delivery a bit in the other direction that will help their effectiveness. But my point is not really so much about that. It's more about on the listening side. If you will not listen to anyone, if you are implacable, you know, unpleasable, no matter what the message is, no matter how it's delivered, you need to examine yourself. Seriously examine yourself. No pastor's perfect or will say things perfectly or emphasize the things that you think need to be emphasized. The point is that you have people who simply will not be pleased with the messenger of truth, will not listen to anything, are hard-hearted, no matter what style they have or, you know, you go to one church, you don't like how the pastor does it there, you know. You go to another church, you don't like how he does it there. Uh, You go to a third church, you don't like how he does it there. It's not good, my friends. You know? You've got to take in the truth, not be like the children here in this illustration. The fact is that Jesus and John delivered the same message. We're not talking about pastors delivering different messages, okay? Or those who aren't qualified to be pastors as pastors. I'm not, that's not on the table, okay? John was doing what he was supposed to do. Jesus, of course, was doing what he was doing, supposed to do. Both were teaching about the need for repentance and to enter God's kingdom. You know, one was more like Isaiah preaching to a hard-headed crowd that needed to hear a sober message of repentance, a brood of vipers and all of that. Another is a little lighter, perhaps, like the Apostle John, a a soft touch, maybe you could say, a, a very gracious way of dealing with people like he did, the Lord did with this woman. Just don't be like the... Pharisees and the lawyers of Jesus' generation, intractable, implacable, intransigent, unrepentant, hard-hearted, or hard-headed. Also on this wisdom issue here in verse 35, I just thought a word of application might help us. Usually it's possible to look at somebody's life and the outcome of their life and see if they're exercising a basic level of wisdom or not. There's good reason to believe that if somebody has their life together and is living in a prudent way, that they have wisdom. If the fruits look wise, the root is probably wise. But if the fruits do not look wise, then the root is unwise. Okay, So wisdom is justified by all her children. Uh, the wisdom that is from above, how does it exercise itself? Through the tongue. It's pure and gentle and peaceable and long-suffering. It uses the tongue aright. It's not like the wisdom from beneath that is hard and evil and all that stuff from James chapter 3. We turn from this portion of the text, which deals with this hard-heartedness, to a total opposite. And the title of this section is A Repentant Woman Anoints Jesus. 
chapter 7, 36. And so what happens here is, some time later, a Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him in his home, and, it, and, and he went. Now, we don't know why the Pharisee asked him to come. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us specifically, but he doesn't seem to be as favorable to Jesus as, say, Nicodemus was or Joseph of Arimathea. He may even have had a malicious motive of fault, finding fault with Jesus. So why did Jesus go and eat under those circumstances with this Pharisee? Well, would you, would you turn down an invitation from somebody just because you knew they weren't favorable to Christianity? As somebody knowing my office and my profession invited me to their home, I'd probably go. I mean, unless it was unsafe or something, you know, something like that. But even if I knew that it was going to be a little bit of a dis, you know, an uncomfortable situation, why? Well, Jesus probably knew that there was going to be a woman showed up who needed a, a word of encouragement. And he probably knew that uh, Simon needed some spiritual help. And this was an opportunity for him to offer that help. This is what hospitality does, by the way. When you offer hospitality to people, you have an opportunity to speak with them in a kind of a way that you don't have when you're you know, out in public or even at church. You can speak privately about private things. You can encourage. You can deal with difficulties and struggles that you're having and all of that. You can uh, invite unbelieving people over to your home and share the gospel with them. Pray over your meal and tell them why you pray and why God has blessed you, how he has blessed you rather, and, and what they might do to benefit from that blessing as well. So the Lord had good reason to be there. Verse 37, if you look at that, it says, And behold, okay, and behold. Uh, this indicates a surprise, something totally unexpected. Okay, this is one of those beholds that today would, uh, you know, go viral as a YouTube video short. Somebody with their cell phone pulls it out and says, look at this. I can't believe that this is happening. This woman just showed up uninvited into this home, and she's very out of place here. Look at what she's doing. This was a shocking situation. I don't doubt that people sat there who were around the table and watched intently and maybe didn't even know what to say, like, I've never seen this before in my life. What is going on here? Now, pause for a second that, from that emotion of it and, and say we should note that this incident is not the same as when Mary anointed Jesus later on in Matthew 26, 13. That event happened just before the crucifixion. This one in Luke 7 is much earlier in Jesus' ministry. That event was at Bethany. This event at, in Galilee. That one was done by Mary. This one by an unnamed prostitute. That event included pouring spikenard over Jesus' head in a pre-burial anointing. This one was focused on anointing his feet. So Luke 7 is not the same as Matthew 26. It's not the same as John 12. It's not the same as Mark 14. So 
I uh, was reacquainted with this in my studies because I had just kind of quickly conflated them in my mind, and then I realized, uh uh-oh, they're not the same. They're not the same event that was going on. So you can't take everything that you read from those other passages and import it here as like it's a parallel passage. It's similar, but it's not the same. Now it says, Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... This is a euphemistic way of saying what I already said, that she was a prostitute, okay? Um, And let me emphasize that word, was, okay? Now, in English, we have similar euphemisms. We might say a woman of the night, a call girl, and many other things like that. But I don't want to focus on that so much, but I do want to focus on this one notion of that euphemistic phrase. The indirectness of it is interesting, I think, from a Christian perspective because it indicates something is going on in the consciences of people who are using the terminology. Now, some, of course, are trying to be nice and not say naughty words. You might be even uncomfortable that I use that word that I just used from the pulpit in a Christian church. But everyone is using indirect language because, I think, in their conscience, they know in their heart that something is not right about that lifestyle. It's not wholesome or godly, altogether too common, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes compelled, but it has nothing to do with righteousness. Am I getting my point across that people naturally use euphemistic terms when things are uncomfortable, and it's uncomfortable because it's sin, and it shouldn't be done? Okay, Notice that whenever other euphemisms are used. Uh, about sin. You know, nobody wants to call sodomy sodomy anymore, right? But that's what it is. We just need to be direct and, and plain about that. We, you can't cover over sin with a bunch of perfume and flowers and make it not sin with a bunch of euphemistic words and say it's okay. It's not okay, all right? Well, we're clear what it means when they say this. Now, the woman came to where Jesus was. Now, can you imagine? How did she get in there? You know, past the security guards? Well, maybe there weren't security guards, but she had to sneak in through the crowd, through the side door to get in because the Pharisee would not have invited her into his home. She was a party crasher. Part of the shock was that she was at, no, in the Pharisee's house. Wow. Now, this was not just something that kind of popped up. She had thought about this. She had planned this a little bit. I mean, how often do you walk around with an alabaster flask full of, you know, I don't know how big it was or what it was exactly, but I mean, I don't know, maybe. You just happen to have, you know, a flask of, uh, usually you keep that stuff at home or whatever, you know, your perfume and stuff. And Uh, This alabaster is a type of marble, making the container itself very valuable, and the beautiful smelling anointing oil inside of it probably was also expensive, although we're not told how expensive it was, unlike in Mark 14, where, you know, the treasurer of the group, Judas, he knew how much it was worth, because that's all he cared about was how much it was worth, 300 denarii, he said, or they said. 
So verse 38 tells us what she did when she got in. And, you know, if we could just imagine the drama of all of that, how she thought about this and what she was going to do and how she got in. And she's bringing this flask and this anointing oil. And she had a plan about doing this. And it says, And she stood at his feet behind him weeping. Now, if you imagine the way that they would do a meal, they'd have a very low table, lower, lower than this, by much lower than that, just a little off the floor, and they'd be reclining at the table to eat. And uh, they would recline in such a way, uh, some kind of, they say, recumbent position somehow that would make their feet extend away out from the table. I guess a great way to keep the stinky feet away from the table and the food. You know, joke, okay, but... That's how they were arranged. And so she was behind on the outer perimeter, if you will, of this table, but still where people were and people serving and people eating and looking around. And she was standing there initially, and then she knelt and began to anoint the feet of Jesus. Now, this is, this is weird to us. It's awkward to us. But it wouldn't be as awkward, I suppose, in a society where when you came into a home, they might have a servant who would do what? Wash your feet. Because you're wearing sandals, your feet are dirty, maybe they are stinky, <laughs> you know. Wash your feet with a little bit of water, maybe anoint them a little bit, put a little perfume on them or something, so that that wouldn't be, you know, around the table, that odor and stuff, whatever. So this was a little strange still, even though, because they were used to that sort of thing, but odd. She was weeping. Why was she weeping? She knew enough about who Jesus was and what he represented that she knew she had been living under the severe frown of God because of her sin. Yet she knew from Jesus' teaching somehow that he offered abundant pardon and forgiveness. Her demeanor here is one of contrite, repentant faith. I take it that she was a newly saved woman when she walked into this Pharisee's house. If not, she was only moments away from that transformation. Her tears were flowing freely because she was in the presence of utter holiness. And she recognized her life had not been that way at all. She was freely crying because she had the benefit of being washed of her iniquities by the work of Christ, not yet done, but just as sure as done. She was expressing her love and her saving faith in that moment. She was expressing her repentance, her sorrow over sin. The way that she had lived her life had not been glorifying to God, it had misused her body, that instrument that God gave to her to use to glorify Him. And she had been extricated from that life of sin. By the way, I think, hear me out now, I, I suspect that you are prone to think that she was in a particularly bad class of sinners and that you are better than that, right? 
I know that tendency myself. And I know that most of us know that we're not supposed to think like that, right? But do we think like that anyway? You need to humbly recognize that there is only one class of sinners. Paul goes about a long exposition from Romans 1 to Romans 3 to prove all are under sin. Jews and Greeks alike stand before God without a word they can say, silent, because he has proven them guilty before God. We all either are in or have been recently extricated from sin. I pray every one of us has come to a time when we have wept over our sin in the sight of God. She was able to do so when God was physically nearby in the person of Christ, in the person of Jesus. We can weep over our sin, and God is not physically nearby, but he's near to everyone who is of a contrite heart and has a repentant spirit. He's near to that kind of person. Her tears became the moisture for cleansing the feet of Jesus. Her hair substituted for a cloth to wipe his feet dry. She kissed his feet in her expression of worship and then anointed them with oil, rubbing the feet and ankles with that special aromatic anointing oil. This was her expression of humble and thorough worship of God. She was willing to clean her feet, sorry, his feet with her own hair. Can you imagine that, ladies? Some of you have long enough hair to do that. This demonstrates that she understood his exalted worth. Her whole body, even her prized hair, was able to be used in the service of the great king. She loved Jesus because she understood by experience his forgiveness. Look at verse 39. All of that happened. And the Pharisee who's watching this, mumbling to himself, (laughs) this guy was really a prophet. He would know what's going on here. And and, and what, what is he assuming that he would do? He would say, get away from me, you sinner. That's what he would do, Simon, apparently. Don't touch me. Don't make me unclean. Don't bother me with your expression of gratitude, worship, penance, repentance, contrition. This guy must not really be a prophet, after all. What he doesn't realize is that Jesus knew all about her already. And he knew all about Simon's thinking, too. He was the one who was misunderstanding God's heart towards sinners. Also, Simon didn't realize that Jesus knew all the words that were flowing around in his brain. Simon rejected sinners. He saw them as underneath him. He did not have pity on someone both culpable for sin and victimized by sin. He, he could not stand the idea of this woman touching him if it, were, if it had been him. But it was only in his mind that she was more unclean than he was. 
the truth is that we also, sorry, that he also is in desperate need of forgiveness. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. All the world is guilty before God, Romans 3, 9 and 19 tell us. So now Jesus is going to tell another uh, story, if you will. He gave an illustration of children earlier. Now he's going to tell a story about the uh, present situation, about somebody, two people in debt, one 500 denarii, the other 50. So a month and a half, two months worth of wages versus you know a year and a half or whatever, 10 times a huge amount of debt. And the creditor freely forgave them both. His forgiveness was free and immediate. They owed nothing more. So to Jesus' rhetorical question, it made sense that the person who was forgiven much would love much. I think the vast sum or vast difference between the sums of money makes that pretty clear. Even though we could imagine a situation where somebody that's forgiven a lot just goes off and is ungrateful, or somebody that's forgiven a little bit is grateful, okay? We can imagine that, but the point is, obviously, if you've been forgiven a huge load of, of debt, a huge sin load, too, you're going to be very thankful if all else is equal. Simon understood the story, and he said, I, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. I don't know if Simon was a little... Uh, uh, you know, impatient with the storytelling here, or if he thought, I don't know, I, I, I guess I'll answer the question. You know, he's just kind of sick of it and showing us disdain for what the Lord is saying, not getting the point. But Jesus replied with a rapid-fire comparison showing that Simon was not as good as he thought. He was, in fact, listen, he was, in fact, rude, Simon was, while the woman was very loving to the Lord. Simon had not humbly offered even water for Jesus to to wash his own feet. There's something not right there, not just with etiquette, but with where Simon's brain was. He had invited Jesus into his home, but had not cared for his guest in a culturally appropriate way. The woman was doing better than Simon, and yet she was a sinner, so-called. She offered not only water, but the, the water of her tears and the cloth of her hair. She was sacrificial in her love for the Lord. Simon does not seem to have had any love for him. Simon had not greeted Jesus with a kiss, which is a sign of distance in a culture that would use cheek kissing as a common greeting. The woman repeatedly, however, kissed the, the Lord's feet. This wasn't an inappropriate activity. It was a humble activity that she was doing. What, what, I'm just thinking right now, okay? Don't be offended now if this applies to you, but apply it. Sometimes I know over the years, I'll, I'll just say, you know, my, my longer experience of ministry in the past, just so I won't make you feel uh, like I'm talking at you, even if I am talking at you. When I notice that somebody doesn't come to the door and greet me afterwards, that tells me something. What do you think it tells? When Jesus came into the house and did not receive the customary greeting from the host, what do you think he thought? 
What do you think the host was saying by doing, not doing that? Fill in the blanks. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? There's a rift, okay? The pastor's sixth sense goes up. The antennas, you know, eh, 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 something's wrong. That brother or sister has some kind of issue. Something needs to be corrected. Something needs to be helped. Don't think you can hide it, my friends. Okay? It's there. Simon also did not anoint Jesus' head, but the woman anointed his feet. Now, verse 47 says this, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Jesus frankly states, and he's not, he's not like closing his eyes to this. He knows this. He knows this about you too. She had many sins in her life. The parable showed a free and gracious forgiveness for a person in such a state with the result that that person loved the creditor a whole lot. The parable does not say, however, that the more indebted person loved the creditor more so as to earn the forgiveness. What happened first, the love or the forgiveness in the story? The forgiveness. God gives every grace necessary for salvation. You know the song, what was it, verse 2 in the song that talked about the the grace of, of true faith and of repentance? God grants that to us. So we can't say we earned it. It's a gracious gift. And so it was with this, with this creditor. He, uh, he freely forgave them. He graciously, mercifully forgave them, both. And then they loved him for what he had done. The context of the parable controls the meaning here. So notice it says in verse 47, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. We read that backwards how it's intended. We read it like, oh, she, she loved, and so that was the ground of the forgiveness. No, that was the result of the forgiveness. It's clear from the context of the, of the parable that the Lord told. So the parable, uh, the order in the parable controls the meaning here, so we cannot conclude love is a work that earned the woman her salvation. Rather, she was freely forgiven, And she recognized that, and I think she recognized that before she walked into the Pharisee's house. She came in weeping. She was repentant. And what does it take, by the way, in order to be saved? Repentant faith. When she exercised that repentance, she might not have known the words to say, just like you. You might not know exactly what words to say to God, but if you know that God is gracious and that Jesus died for your sins and rose again to take care of that sin problem, and you come to him weeping and saying, God, I'm a sinner. I don't know what to do. Yeah, help. You know what he's going to do? He's going to save your soul, even if you don't know all the right words to say. You'll learn the right words because he'll bring his spirit in you and transform you, change you, because you know that he loved you and gave himself for you. And that's what this woman was, was doing. 
She expressed her love and gratitude after she was forgiven and her worship for the Lord. She loved a lot because her many sins were forgiven, not the other way around. By contrast, somebody who loves little demonstrates they were forgiven little. And it appears in Simon's case that he loved not at all because his sins were not forgiven at all. Such a one does not appreciate the incalculable value of forgiveness, whereas someone who is in the depths of the ocean whether the ocean of financial debt or the ocean of sin will understand it perfectly, what God has done for them. So he reiterates, Jesus does, that the woman's sins are forgiven. Verse 48, people at the table say, what in the world is this? Well, we don't have any problem with that because we remember Luke 5, 24. He did that miracle of raising that man, that paralyzed man off of his bed. And why, why did he do that? So that you would know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. then her love response showed that she was forgiven. So if there is no such response, by the way, we do well to question seriously whether there ever was forgiveness in the first place. Do you see a shortfall of love in your own heart toward Christ? Ask yourself, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jesus did that for me? How can I not love him with all my heart? The narrative ends in verse 50 with the woman receiving this comforting word from the Lord, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I presume that she knew as all believers do, when you go in peace, you go and sin no more, too. That's in other passages of Scripture. God has connected faith in Him and salvation so tightly, integrally together that we can legitimately say what Jesus said here. Your faith has saved you. Where was her faith? In Jesus. Thank you. Her faith was not in her faith. Her faith was not that she was a spiritual person. Her faith was not empty. Her faith was in a specific person named Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we know. We can also say not only faith saves, but God saves and Jesus saves and the meritorious work of Christ saves and grace saves, but despite all the layers that make salvation function, faith is a real instrument that brings salvation into somebody's life. And so we can say that your faith has made you whole. When she came to Jesus, I'm closing now, so please don't run out of patience on me just yet. When she came to Jesus, we would say she was in a state. She was in a quandary. She was in a, she was in a, a difficult situation. She was grieved by her sin. She was repentant. She was troubled. Now she had assurance directly from the master that she was saved. Her sins were washed away. She could go in peace. Put that woman, I'm sorry, put yourself in that woman's shoes. Your conduct has not in the past demonstrated a love for God, but rather a love for yourself and your pleasures. Do you desire to be cleansed and know God? I trust that God's Spirit will work in you to that end. And if your faith has saved you, is there evidence of that and sacrificial love for Christ? I'm talking about real sacrifice now, not trivial sacrifice like we talked about this morning. 
you know, to give a few bucks or to skip some entertainment to serve the Lord, that's sacrifice? Not at all. Jesus gave all for you. He gave everything. That was a sacrifice. How about you for him? And I just have to go back again and contrast the two sections of the text. You have the implacable leaders of Israel and some of the men there, and then you have this woman. For all, for all of the, you know, the grief that's been heaped upon the Bible for saying things like it does in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about the woman being deceived was in the transgression and all of that, the woman here was the one that had a sensitivity enough to know her sin. And she came to Jesus and worshipped him. Whereas these other guys, they're just like children. Running around, couldn't make them happy at all. No message was ever going to penetrate their souls. The leadership in many in Israel could not bear the thought of admitting that Jesus was right. She, on the other hand, could not bear the thought of thinking she was right. You see the difference? I'm right, you're wrong. No, I'm wrong, Jesus is right. I'm wrong, God is true. I'm a liar, but God's not a liar. She repented with tears and remorse, contriteness and gratitude. The others refused to repent at all. That's how you tell the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. Contrite awareness of your sin before Christ. Then he will forgive you. Then you can love him truly. Father in heaven, I pray that these words will sink into our hearts, that we'll take this precious truth with us these coming days. Lord, I pray that today, both this morning's service around the table the exhortations about the priority of attending a local church and, and the call to heed the meaning of the blood of Christ and then this example of contrite faith. Would it work in us, I pray? Would your spirit work, please, in Jesus' name? Amen.